Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another brand new episode of Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host, Nav C. And I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape, and reform ongoing narratives. Firstly, a quick introduction to today's episode, Nature versus Nurture. Now, this conjures up images of an epoch-like debate, and it's a fascinating topic because it allows us all as individuals to think about our own existence from a completely different perspective than simply day-to-day human interaction. But also, it's quite a complex topic, and we've tried to keep the theory to a bare minimum. But as always, the theory section is uh, is an essential component to be able to uh, grasp the, the broader details and progress to any form of discussion. So in terms of a roadmap, the way we've approached today's episode is to begin with a, a short definition, uh, introduce the context, and then uh, we can proceed to framing the, uh, the debate itself of nature versus nurture. And then... Uh, NAVSI will set out the empirical or theoretical background before we enter the the main area of discussion for this debate. And particularly uh, how relevant this debate is within a modern age. And this leads us to ask a very, very pertinent question. Why are children in today's modern era having so many problems controlling their behavior? And then we'll move on to a final analysis. So... This is the main question. Is the nature versus nurture debate still valid in a modern age? Now, the nature versus nurture debate refers to the extent to which certain aspects of our behavior are either in an inherited factor, in other words, genetic, i.e. from our parents, or is it absorbed from our environment? In other words, is it learned behavior? So, in short, nature is thought of as anything which is pre-wired by genetics or biological factors. And nurture is thought of as uh, that influence uh, towards external factors after birth or during our formative years and throughout our life. So, let's take a look at some background. So, we know that each generation faces trials and tribulations based on social and political changes. And as a society, we mistakenly think of this term progress through a very limited spectrum of measures such as technology or economic change. But when we try to align these measures against human development from a parent-child perspective, we're reminded of issues which plague each and every generation, such as antisocial behavior, child tantrums, uh, a resistance to routine and order, disaffection with authority, social engagement issues, and the list goes on and on. And every parent can relate to something or other on that list. So this raises a very fundamental question. Has the process of raising children regressed over time due to rapid economic change? 
And has a new order of progressive norms replaced a common sense approach to child development, all in the name of fast living and convenient lifestyles? So in the majority of social settings, parents are primary caregivers and are among the most important people in the lives of young children. From birth, children are constantly learning and they're reliant on their parents for guidance, as well as other caregivers around them who who act within that parenting role. So we know that it's imperative for children uh, to have this need to be protected and cared for. So they they follow a course that promotes health, well-being and uh, and a social standing uh, later on in their lives. And it's completely natural for parents to be excited about how their children develop and how their lives and their personalities blossom. But equally, there's a, there's a lack of knowledge about how best to care and provide for children. And we all know that parenthood is an overwhelming event. And although it's greatly anticipated, the uncertainty of being a parent is compounded by unforeseen problems in relation to the ability to ensure uh, the, the best outcome for each child's physical, emotional or economic well-being. So there's a clear point which follows from this, and and that's that understanding the social aspects of parenting are critical because this has real implications, not only for the parents' welfare, but also ongoing child development and ultimately uh, overall for the, the health of society. And to tackle these issues, I'd like to begin with some background to the nature versus nurture debate. And a useful starting point is with some brief history. And we'll break this down into three sections. So the first part, this looks at the initial use of this term nature versus nurture. Where, where did it actually come from and how did it uh, be, come to use uh, in, the, in our daily day, day-to-day semantics? So it's credited to the 19th century psychologist Sir Francis Galton and his 1874 publication entitled English Men of Science, Then Nature and Nurture. So he argued that traits such as intelligence and character are hereditary factors. And incidentally, this is well before the the modern understanding uh, of genetics. And his idea was in stark contrast to earlier scholars such as John Locke, who believed that Children are essentially born with a blank slate, and their traits develop purely from experience and learning. So, moving on to the second part of this brief history, we go forward to the 20th century, and the overall debate continued pretty much along the same theme. And during the 1900s, the two eminent schools of thought regarding human behavior and psychiatric symptoms were as follows. First of all, we had behaviorism, which emphasized the significance of influential behavior. And the uh, other school of influence was psychoanalysis. So this was developed from the ideas of Sigmund Freud. And this focused on the ways in which unconscious, aggressive drives were channeled through various defense mechanisms. Now, both of these viewpoints, they they, they shared the common theme that the surrounding environment and the individual's direct experiences known as nurture were the driving forces in human development as we know it. And then from the 1970s to the 
to the end of the 20th century, there was a, uh, a complete sea change in terms of direct knowledge of the brain and our understanding of genetics. And this led to a, a much greater appreciation of nature as a key influence on an individual's thoughts, feelings and behavior. And in particular, this period was marked by the launch of what was known as the Human Genome Project in 1990. And the, the, this whole decade was labeled uh, the decade of the brain. And on a broad level, governments were very active uh, to fund neuroscience research in pursuit of these aims. And also of significance at this time was a new research methodology which was directed at purely at this nature-nurture issue. And this study was the study of genetic twins which allowed researchers to calculate the extent to which a particular variable such as height or intelligence could be attributed to genetic versus environmental factors. And overall, the, the consensus of research showed that when it came to behavioral variables, both genetic and environmental influences were on equal par in terms of uh, relevance and importance. So when we look at this issue of relevance to this area and the types of studies involved, it meant that it's very difficult to argue categorically uh, for either nature or nurture as the main driver of behavioral traits and disorders. But having said that, uh, it's also important to remember that researchers will always argue for their own version of events depending on their own particular area of expertise or their interests. So the two viewpoints are still treated uh, to this day as independent schools of thought. So this leads us to the third part of this brief history, which is uh, this concept that nature is actually a part of nurture. And at the moment, the majority of scientists will argue that the nature and nurture perspectives are closely linked to one another. And therefore, genes have an influence on the environments that we experience. And simultaneously, uh, an individual's environment and experience alters the extent to which certain genes are manifested. And, and this, again, this has direct relevance to the physical structure and activity of how the brain works. So now that we've reviewed the historical aspect of the debate, let's take a, a closer look uh, what does this uh, debate entail? So, from the outset, it's, it's one of the oldest philosophical arguments within fields such as biological sciences, uh, behavioral psychology, or from the view of soci sociology. So, nature refers to genes and, and, and those hereditary factors that influence who we are as individuals. And this could be from our physical appearance to our personality traits. On the other hand, nurture, this refers to those environmental factors which affect us. So this, include, uh, this includes uh, early childhood experiences, uh, the manner in which we were raised, the social relationships we were exposed to, and of course our surrounding culture. So this debate focuses on whether genetic or environmental factors have a greater influence on uh, a person's behavior. So on the nature side of the argument, 
we have the nativists and they advocate that all of our characteristics and behaviors stem purely from evolution. And the genetic traits were, were just simply handed down from our parents and therefore these traits influence our individual makeup. And as mentioned earlier, one of the, um, the, 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 the importance of nature is, is expressed through the study of twins. So for instance, Identical twins share the same genetics, but they could be raised separately in, in two different environments. So therefore, they're socialized in different ways. And, and by looking at this type of research, it offers an, a clear insight into um, an individual's abilities, their preferences and, and uh, temperaments, and whether we're shaped by our genetic makeup or our social environment. So examples of biologically determined characteristics could include uh, certain genetic diseases or uh, the color of our eyes, the color of our hair, or the color of our skin. So then when we look at the environment side of the argument, the external factors, we have the empiricists who were uh, represented by philosophers such as David Hume and John Locke. And according to their view, all of our knowledge and individual makeup is shaped by our experiences um, and the way we're exposed through learning. And behaviorism is one example of a theory rooted in empiricism. And this includes advocates such as John Watson, who believe that individuals could be trained to do pretty much anything just simply by conditioning and the, and it, it had nothing to do with their genetic background. So so this is a, the key point that he raised here, this, this idea of conditioning to the environment. So let's take a look at some examples because this would really help to explain to the listeners the, the viewpoints of both of these camps. And we can use examples uh, which are, are very well known uh, to us in terms of um, it's not celebrities, but I'm, I'm, I'd like to use this um, example of sports stars because I think they, they um, epitomize this idea between nature and nurture. So when a, um, a sports star achieves tremendous professional success, then we wonder how, how did they do this? Was it something in their background or were, were they genetically predisposed towards success? Or perhaps it was a, just a result of the, the, the way they were exposed to a, a very enriched environment. So let's look at tennis, for instance. And um, I, I'm going to expose my bias here because uh, I was always a great John McEnroe fan. And so let, let's look at his um, rivalry between uh, Jimmy Connors and, and John McEnroe. So there were uh, two completely opposing styles uh, of, of tennis player. And... Connors, by definition, wasn't a very highly gifted player, but he had, in terms of ground strokes, but his game was built on physio, uh, physical conditioning and, uh, in particular, his double-banded uh, backhand and the sheer willpower that he used in, in the games and the tenacity that he brought onto the court. And then when we look at John McEnroe, he was... He actually conditioned himself to be a, a, a perfect shot uh, maker, and he had that that beautiful deft touch and natural ability. So, if we look at it on a crude level, we can say that McEnroe's style was based on genetical factors, 
and Connor's style was based on conditioning. So again, let's look at another example. And again, I'm, I'm going to expose my bias here. I'm a great boxing fan. So let's look at this uh, um, this matchup. I mean, although it never happened, but let's look at this, uh, for instance, Rocky Marciano versus Muhammad Ali. So Marciano's style was purely physical. It was based on fitness, power, a very low center of gravity, and, and this indomitable spirit that he had. And Ali's style was based on speed, agile movement, and the conditioning of the mind based on a, a, a supreme strategy that he brought to each and every match. So these examples provide an insight into the possible range between nature and nurture. And, th and this leads us uh, to uh, the, the next thought, which is how does this information about genetics or environment, how does it translate to the actual de debate between nature uh, versus nurture in terms of our mental and physical health? So generally, it's understood that certain physical traits or mental health disorders, they tend to run in families. However, whichever illness your parents have or your grandparents, siblings had or other biological members of your family have or had, it doesn't mean that you'll necessarily inherit them. But there is this likelihood that you, you might develop them because um, that likelihood definitely increases because you, you have this predisposition to that particular trait. And examples of this include schizophrenia in mental health, bipolar disorder, major depression, or even alcohol addiction. But that said, it's also understood that environmental factors play a major part on whether you develop common health problems in your family. And examples of this include the habits of parents, uh, the habits of friends or a partner. And this Conclude, uh, sorry, this could include, for, for instance, alcohol addiction or substance abuse. But then we ask ourselves, what about this issue of intelligence? I mean, is that based on nature versus nurture? Uh, and as with most human traits, intelligence is, is generally understood now to be the result of a combination of both nature and nurture. And genes uh, clearly influence the size and the biochemistry of the brain. But it's the full development of the brain doesn't actually occur until we reach our early 20s. So therefore, intelligence and uh, the subsequent learning that we're exposed to, this also shapes the environment that the person grows up in. But having said that, there, there are certain characteristics of intelligence which are tied into environmental factors. So for instance, let's look at an, in, uh, an individual's behavior. It could be linked to parenting style and uh, the learned behavior that they're exposed to. So a child might learn through observation and, and just pure repetition to say, please and thank you. And then when you compare this to a different situation, a different child, they might learn aggressive behavior by observing older children who engage in violent behavior in, in, in the playground. But on the whole, most experts today still recognize that both nature and nurture are factors which play an important role in deciding parent-child outcomes. And height is one example of this, uh, of this trait that is influenced by both nurture and nature. And let's look at this again. A, 
a child might come from a family where everyone is tall and that particular child may have in inherited specific genes uh, for the trait of height. However, if that individual grows up in a completely different environment, suppose it's um, deprived, um, you know, they might be uh, poorly nourished, that individual may never attain the height that they, they, they could possibly achieve if they grew up in a, in a healthy environment. And just to explain this to the listeners, uh, I'd like to share one example with you regarding the issue of height. And again, I'm, uh, I have to expose my bias and I have to sh uh, share my love of boxing here. So let, let's take another look at the world of professional boxing. So the current WBC heavyweight champion is a British boxer called Tyson Fury. And his height is estimated to be six foot nine. And it's a very interesting scenario uh, when you look at uh, his um, upbringing. So he was born severely premature. He was undernourished when he was born and he had a very, very slim chance of survival. So although he was predisposed to height through a genetical advantage from his father, John Fury, it was the environment which created unfavorable conditions uh, to reach his true height potential. So this is, a, again, a perfect example where nature and nurture play an equal role. And it's important to consider the, uh, also the controversial aspect of the, the naturist view. So from a historical perspective, the, the nature debate has continued over decades to create uh, waves uh, in terms of controversy especially this idea of the eugenics argument, which was a movement heavily influenced by the nativists. And, the, and the, the essence of this idea is that we can improve humanity by allowing only certain people, um, a few people, to produce children. And as soon as you hear this, you can already hear the alarm bells going off in terms of the significance of that statement. And... Uh, it was uh, Francis Galton, uh, the person who coined the term nature versus nurture. He believed that intelligence was the result of genetics and, and therefore he believed that only intelligent people should be encouraged to marry and, and therefore have children. Whereas less intelligent individuals could be discouraged from reproducing. And as a result, during the early 1900s, Eugenics researchers in the United States believe that by isolating genetic patterns of inheritance for a particular trait, this would justify policies such as involuntary sterilization. And the most infamous eugenics movement that we know of, um, I'll talk about this in a moment. So by the, by the 1930s, eugenics had, had largely been discredited in the United States. But by 1933, the eugenics movement had caught the attention of the Nazi government in Germany, which issued the so-called law for the prevention of progeny with hereditary diseases. And this meant that at least 400,000 Germans were involuntarily sterilized for having hereditary conditions such as mental illness, epilepsy, feeble-mindedness, or even physical deformities. And this also proved to be the precursor for Hitler's eugenics-based national program of race hygiene, which was essentially a program of euthanasia, which targeted both children and adults with mental and physical disorders. So although most experts now believe that both nature and nurture influence behavior, 
the issue still rears its ugly head in other debates, such as the origins um, of homosexuality. And, and people ponder about this in, in a lot of online debates and in, in news forums and, uh, and, and the related influences on intelligence. So this brings us neatly to, the, to today's consensus view regarding nature versus nurture. The modern debate centers on the effect that genes have on the type of character an individual possesses, especially in terms of gene expression and cell influence. And what I'm referring to here is the way in which hormones and growth factors in the cell can turn some genes on and, and turn other genes off. So it's this uh, interconnectedness of nature and nurture. So th this is what has real implications for how we view human development, despite the fact that both issues are seen as two completely separate topics. So interestingly, this debate is best observed from an academic's uh, psychology viewpoint or via public information in relation to parenting and early education or family support uh, or perhaps in the perspective of delinquency and criminality and uh, and of course uh, uh, the one that we're going to focus on in, in in the next segment which is the the child and family perspective and the the parent and child relationship so it's the latter area of child and family perspective that we now turn our attention but before we do that let, what we'll do is we'll start um to take a brief look at some of the main research findings which support parent-child development using this nature and nurture debate. And we're actually coming up to a break now. Um, so uh, in a few moments, I'll, I'll ask Navsi to uh, begin her presentation. And what she'll focus on is, uh, the, uh, as a starting point, the empirical view uh, of uh, parent-child development. Um, and, and this uh, allows us to take a much greater uh, look at this, uh, this whole idea of uh, parent-child relationships. So, as I said, we're, we're coming up to a break now and uh, we'll have some excellent uh, issues um, to discuss in the next segment. So, uh, we'll, I'd just like to hold that thought and um, we'll see you very soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. 
Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Are you looking for a fun yet informative program about health care for your pet? Check out Awesome Woo Woo Holistic Vet Advice with Dr. Jim and Kristen Carlson. They look into natural health alternatives for ourselves, so why not our pets? This program provides the most up-to-date, accurate, and innovative information about traditional and holistic veterinary medicine. You'll find a ton of answers regarding your pet's health every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. It's great to have your company. And now I'm going to hand over to Nav C. Uh, thank you, Nav M going to start with the empirical view of parent-child development. The various approaches that parents use to shape their child's development have long been a source of uh, discussion by both scientists and parents. From a scientific perspective, most of the empirical work which links parents' behavior to development outcomes in children has been produced by disciplines such as um, psychologists and biological sciences. However, Current thinking about parent-child relationship and child development focuses on three main areas. First being the cause. The determination of how parent-child relationship directly or indirectly influences a child's well-being. Second is the context, which means to what extent can we generalize about about finding findings across diverse populations. And third is the convertibility which means to what extent can research be converted to intervention at the individual family or community level? It's generally understood that a child's genes or social influences lead directly to how they behave within society and understand this. And to understand this better, I will first explore the social learning theory. Social learning theory argues that real life experiences shape people's behavior. It refers to reinforcement and conditioning. In other words, if a child is rewarded for their behavior in terms of parental approval, they're more likely to perform that uh, behavior again. 
Uh, on the other hand, if they're ignored, there's less likely to repeat that behavior. Children learn to manage their emotions and engage with others, not just by their experiences, but also by the reaction to their response. This is more so in the case of younger children because their relationship shapes their personality. Now, this brings us to another important factor, which is the attachment theory. Attachment theory deals with issues of safety and protection. It focuses on the extent to which a relationship provides a child with protection against danger as well as emotional security. It argues that the quality of care that's provided to a child leads to a secure or a non-secure attachment. In other words, insecure attachments don't always lead to disturbances and secure attachment do not guarantee against disturbances. Attachment relationships are internalized and carried forward to influence relationships. Sensitive care from parents leads to child developing a sense of love for themselves as well for others. Parenting styles. Children of authoritative parents are most pro-social and academically and socially competent, while children of authoritarian permissive and disengaged parents show much more worse outcomes. Over the past few decades, um, researchers have identified parenting knowledge and practices which are associated with improving outcomes for children. This creates better designed parenting-related programs, policies, and, uh, and messaging initiatives. So having understood the, the empirical context, we can now begin to focus on the broader issue of uh, parent-child relations via the nurture-nature model and subsequent child development by asking a fundamental question, which is, why are children having so many problems controlling their behavior? Childhood and parenting have changed radically in the past few decades to the point where far more children are struggling to manage their behavior as a result. This has an overspill effect on uh, the other caregivers like the teachers who struggle daily with difficult behavior and emotional issues from children in their lives. There are three main factors that explain it. So going to the first factor, first thing is where where kids are playing and how much they are allowed to play has changed. Going back, one or two generations, uh, kids played outside most of the time. They had limited toys, so they were heavily dependent on their ma- imagination to make new games. And they spent most of the time outdoors. And uh, parents had to give constant reminders to them to, to come back uh, to the house before it got dark. Arguably, this was a, there was a greater sense of safety back then, which lacks now because of various factors. Second, is the access to technology and social media, which has increased. Nowadays, technology is easily available at a very young age. One one view is that kids want to sit inside their house watching TV or playing games or, uh, you know, just uh, being on social media in general. They seem to prefer to sit in the comfort of their own homes rather than going out, you know, connecting with nature or just getting some fresh air. The the idea that the whole family, uh, you know, would get together and watch TV all together in the living room in the evening just seems to have disappeared. And it's just like a distant memory. 
But going back one or two generations, kid did not have access to all these devices and uh, social media. Uh, so because of the lack of technology, uh, because of the lack of uh, technology, or they, they were using their own initiative to do things and keep themselves busy, uh, the only two things that we had, um, you know, or they had when they were growing up was probably a home telephone and uh, a TV set. So times have changed. Uh, coming to the third point, children today are not appropriate, appropriately engaged in terms of creating a sense of community within the household. They lack the understanding that uh, doing small jobs in the house uh, helps to instill confidence and creates a sense of togetherness, leading to a sense of self-worth and self-value. Kids nowadays just, uh, you know, do not wish to contribute to household chores. They prefer to stay in their rooms doing their own thing. They seem to walk around with um, a sense of entitlement, which is quite distasteful. Earlier generations understood that they had to help out with chores. They had to have a part-time job and understood that everyone has to help out in order to function as a one family unit. This brings us to the point where, regarding parents directing children instead of what are they directing them to in, uh, instead of household chores. Okay, they've been asked to pursue uh, academic goals, uh, you know, take interest in sports and athletics, you know, music. They Don't get me wrong, these are all great goals, but focus on long term and are very self-indulgent. These do not promote a sense of contribution and belonging in a family the way that a simple household chore would. For, for instance, helping to prepare a meal or uh, sweeping the yard or cutting grass, painting a fence, etc. These tasks actually build character and are very, very essential. Children are motivated by a sense of fairness. So by delegating, they are more receptive, receptive to instructions. There is an argument that the fundamentals or dynamics have changed or altered. Two to three decades ago, children had access to their local neighborhoods in mixed age groups. Uh, playing was unsupervised or in some cases lightly supervised. Small disputes were resolved easily among themselves. And they um, themselves, they had a strong motivation to do this because they wanted to keep playing as long as they could. They, they utilized time and planning techniques to create eating and planning routines so that they could accommodate everything. Overall, this gave them independence and in turn confidence and a feeling of self-worth. Nowadays, children stay with the, within the childcare system all day or um, are kept under supervision by a parent or a grandparent. So there's no requirement to take risks. Time is not being managed by them. Consequently, they have no decision-making choices or conflict resolution compared to three to four generations ago. They repre this represents valuable social and emotional skills for children to learn. For example, when we look at the play activities of young mammals, we realize that behavior is realized through risk-taking in play. So what are the key points to learn from allowing children to take emotional and physical risks? Children need to develop resistance against stress and anxiety uh, of dithering or stalling away and being less risk aversive. And the best way to do this is to experience all the small scapes and bumps associated with it by becoming involved in bolder decision-making process. 
fundamental problems stem from how we self-govern our behavior and that of children due to creating an atmosphere of anxiety at home. In other words, worry and hurry situation. Our worries manifest on them and they always ask to hurry up in most of the situations. Now, how is this manifested? This can be shown or comes out in various ways. Uh, various ways by kids acting out at school, tantrums, rage, toddlers jumping in and out of car seats because they can't control their behavior or impulses, antisocial behavior in the playground, uh, in some cases being frozen due, during exams because exams because they have so much of uh, uh, so much of a high rate of anxiety. Failure to govern in this home leads to much bigger problems such as rise in stress levels, anxiety, depression, uh, ADHD, substance addiction, and potential suicides as well. These challenges stem from how poorly children are managing their thoughts, behavior patterns, and emotions, simply because they, they haven't learned the necessary coping skills to carry, out this, uh, carry this out in a healthy procedure. Now we come to the importance of giving kids a sense of control. Initially, we control all the variables of our, king, of our kids' independence. When our children are babies or they're growing up, we are in charge of everything. Slowly, we work towards a situation where they will be older and we will able, and we'll be able to do everything themselves. In other words, we reduce our responsibility and increase their sphere of influence regarding decision-making. From the age of about three to six years, um, children relish the feeling of power but will but fight tooth and nail to resist authority. For instance, um, I can explain this better by giving an example. A parent who has to drop their three-year-old uh, off at childcare before going to work might be running late. And to speed up things, they might, um, you know, mention to the child that they will assist them in putting their shoes and coat. But the child resists saying that they will do it themselves exactly the way that they've been taught at daycare hence imposing their authority on the parent. So this is a perfect example in relation to what I was talking. Children also want to be a part of the overall discussion as well. They want to be involved. Example uh, of this could be being part of the morning routine before leaving the house. It's entirely up to us how we want to portray this uh, emotion. Do we want it to be painful or we just want it to be a fun exercise for the whole family? The consequences is that it might take a little longer to do things, but then the other side is that the kids feel involved, that they have a role and have a willingness to do something. Parents have to tempt them into a model of cooperation, a willingness to share and take risks. For example, giving a young child the responsibility to probably check all the lights uh, in the kitchen and the dining area before leaving for school not only defines uh, their role in the morning routine, it also helps to them to be feel involved. Getting a child to dress themselves and prepare the necessary items for an after-school activity also reinforces a sense of involvement in the day routine of a home, which is very, very essential for development. There's also the idea that punishment has to be justified. It's argued that more behavior is rewarded, the solution becomes less optimal for failures for children and adults in the long term. And the reason is rewards can be counterproductive despite being useful in the short term. Once this tactic fails, 
we once a tactic fails, we resolve to punishment, which again is counterproductive. It is better to use strategies that are built on mutual respect, um, genuine desire to proceed, which will help to get through the day easily. To avoid harsh consequences, psychologists offer a guidance plan which states uh, four important things actually. First of all, harsh outcomes should be identified from the outset. Secondly, both the parties involved should always engage with uh, mutual respect in mind. And the consequences should correlate to the decision taken by the child. Consequences should also be deemed should not be deemed unreasonable by the child. Generally, by the time kids are four to five years old, they're aware of society's rules in terms of etiquette and politeness. Now we come to the point about about the people who will always favor a disciplinarian approach. The tactics and strategies used previously by our grandparents and our parents weren't incorrect in any shape or form. It's just that these models do not work within the children from a modern era. The aim is to impart self-discipline in our children, but the goal, but this goal is unattainable. You know, constantly going back to the control system as a default mechanism. So, at this point, I would uh, like to hand over to Nav M. Uh, so, uh, your thoughts and and your conclusion, uh, Nav M. Yeah, some really interesting issues that you've just mentioned, and it actually reminds me uh, to you know to bring up a point that, um, that that comes to my mind regarding children helping out and sharing with tasks and this idea of building character. So all of these issues remind me of one experience, um, and it was an incident in a mall where there was a father and a toddler waiting outside a bookshop. And I believe the mother went inside uh, to look for an item. And outside the shop, there was a display spinner containing books. And at first, the child begins to investigate uh, spinning the spinner and then by removing and looking through the contents of the books. And then this process uh, continues and then the child throws the books on the ground. Um, And then what I observed was the father, he doesn't intervene, he stands impassively staring at his phone checking his messages but he allows the child to continue and then before you know it there's there's a, a big pile of books on the, on the floor and then the mother comes they all leave and and um and what i found uh, startling was the father never reprimanded his daughter or re- replaced the books back into the spinner and again each person has their own perception of the, their own model of parent child relationship but uh, what that uh, the, the, you know, there's a couple of issues that it just uh, brings up, and it's that again, this sense of entitlement. This that uh, in that particular situation, it was society's responsibility, and it was not um, it's not the father's responsibility to entertain his daughter. And what this suggests is that that in, uh, as individuals, that we are bound. Um, by duty and responsibility to society and and vice versa. And in this way, a parent also has a duty to the child. And equally, the child has responsibility to the parent. So in this particular example that I've just described, it it describes an an experience where there's a a breakdown in the social contract. And uh, 
the father uh, certainly he, he relinquished uh, the social contract and the child wasn't even aware of it and um, on a personal level um, the way we brought our kids up was that before you go into the uh, any form of retail environment a shop etc we told them to look with your eyes and not your hands and so therefore we established the the social contract before during and after the event so let's move on now now that we've reviewed the various issues in parent child development by looking at uh, some different scenarios uh, specifically from the nature nurture perspective we can start towards a final analysis and previously we established that the vast majority of research points to the fact that the quality of parent-child relationship uh, is often linked to uh, a, a, div a diverse range of possible child outcomes and I think it's fair to say that uh, researchers are now realizing that simply looking at this debate and, and, and trying to search for answers about how traits are influenced via a one-dimensional medium such as uh, focusing purely on genetics or purely on environment is just not the right approach. In reality, there, there's actually a range of interconnected influences beyond just uh, the, the, these issues of genetics and environment. And in fact, what we realize is that the two variables overlap each other and are linked more so to uh, social and cultural experiences. So now that we uh, realize that we're analyzing a multi-dimensional approach to the nature-nurture model, we can ask some very, very clear questions. And uh, um, especially in, in light of the fact that what are the challenges, what are the main challenges in implementing affecting parenting practices. So I'm going to start with a, a few points. So I think it's necessary uh, right from the outset to consider that there's a huge complexity of hardships that individuals experience about parenting. And more importantly, do many people um, as parents, do they have the ability to convey that knowledge in practical terms to their relevant municipalities through the uh, relevant programs and services they offer? And let's not forget one thing, that many families in advanced economies are also affected by hardships such as poverty, health issues, mental illness, substance use and domestic violence. So this just proves that the debate goes beyond genetic, uh, genetics and, and environment. And another challenge is that the limited knowledge of how culture and race influence child raising practices and end development. And, uh, and again, there are huge differences here in parenting across communities, including uh, issues such as race, ethnicity, culture, immigrant experience uh, and this clearly has implications for child development especially for low-income working families and again uh, it shows that the factors which the original debate refers to they, they, they're just too simplistic and another major factor is the is the makeup of parenting and, ch and children uh, in advanced economies has changed drastically over the last 50 years. And this is mainly uh, as a result of widespread immigration to continents such as North America and Western Europe. But once more, what this proves is that the nature versus nurture debate is more complex than first thought. 
And also, uh, when we move on and look at these points, the structure of family units has become more diverse in terms of class, race, and ethnicity. And there are much fewer children now being raised in households with two married parents. And there are more uh, children living with same-sex parents and also more living with kinship caregivers such as grandparents and um, and various other household arrangements. So again, it proves that the debate goes beyond just this uh, limited idea of genetics uh, and environment. And then finally, what about the model itself, the way we're approaching this from, from an advanced economy perspective? Are we looking at this from a, uh, a totally different uh, or a, a biased view? So let's just look at developing economies where children and parents survive purely on a subsistence level. How do they apply the nature-nurture approach from this viewpoint? So, and again, is our model simply based or uh, on a skewed approach? So now I'm going to wrap up with some concluding remarks. So let's go back to our original question. Is the nature versus nurture debate still valid in, in a modern age? And I would say, given all the evidence, it's definitely valid, but not in the form that it was originally presented to us by Francis Galton, because the dynamics of the argument have changed so much due to social and technological advancements that essentially we really need to look at a new paradigm or a new model uh, to, uh, to have a much uh, better understanding of this debate. And these are points which I'll, I'll just quickly run through now. So firstly, there, there are inherent drawbacks to the, to the nature-nurture model, especially in terms of how this experiment w was set up and what, what was the ex exact design. And then um, we should also scrutinize uh, Galton's fundamental premise, which under, underpins the, the whole nature-nurture model. And that is basically that the statement that we're dealing with is a scientific fact. And actually, the validity uh, of statistical formula derived from uh, Galton's uh, approach is derived from purely unproven assumptions. So again, we have to question the desired results of the experiments. And then there's this uh, issue of um, morality. So when Galton first uh, thought about nature and nurture, he was influenced by his cousin, Charles Darwin. And at the time, Darwin's theory of evolution caused a huge outrage to religious authorities. So therefore, one reason why this uh, debate is so fascinating is because it goes to the heart of this issue about moral character and it resembles an internalizing viewpoint of humanity. And then we have to ask a very pointed question that what have we actually learned about the nature nurture debate? The fact is the debate has con continued for so long that it suggests that we haven't learned that actually that much. And it's also, it's just simply not possible to state this debate in conclusive evidence about where these traits come from because certain traits result from genetics and others from environmental factors. And what we establish is that each of the traditional perspectives of nature and nurture, they offer a unique look at the factors uh, regarding personality development. But the fact is that these viewpoints don't take into account uh, subtle complexities which accompany it. Um, and one example of this, for instance, is just male aggression, because the argument is that males are naturally aggressive because of their hormonal makeup. But this doesn't 
take into account wide-ranging definitions about the meaning or the practice of aggression between cultures. So again, it just focuses on this issue that there's so many um, dynamic variables involved. So then picking up from this uh, concept of the fact that we, we haven't come to an, uh, a complete picture of nature and nurture, there's growing research which uh, into an alternative approach to human uh, cognitive development. And this is referred to as the, the noetic perspective, and it's derived from the Greek word noesis. And basically uh, what this looks at is that uh, it, it looks at scientific and, and, and technolo technological advancements um, in, in one uh, dimension only. But uh, the, the fact is that, um, that noetics deals with a much uh, completely different perspective, um, and, and that is that this issue of um, instinct and intuition and intellect are only one aspect of the, the uh, information gathering process, and, and perhaps you know, we, sh we should be looking at much, much uh, wider issues, such as, uh, for instance, a, a more spiritual dimension. So that um, brings us up to the, to the end of this episode. And um, many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. We really appreciated your company today. Uh, as always, you can go online at gmc-radio.com. You can send us your feedback by emailing us at info at gmc-radio.com. Please like, share and comment, connect via our social channels. And a quick mention that this show is syndicated to iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn and Google Play. And you can just subscribe via their apps to make sure that you never miss a show. And once again, thank you very much for being such great company. We'll see you next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific and 12 noon Eastern. Thanks very much. Thanks again. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.